0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from say her name and COVID, to the war on CRT, and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements. And even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. If they don't fix this shit. We're gonna you think this is one this fucking country. day? Millions of Americans are up. just over one year ago, many of us watched in horror at the violent and anti-democratic attempt to seize power at our nation's capital.
1: The country watching, the world watching what America looked like today.
0: While the physical attacks we witnessed that day lasted about seven hours, the insurrection itself has in many ways been never ending. Never ending in its relentless aftermath, which has decisively shaped our perceptions of the conduct of our politics, especially on the right. And never ending in the sense that it arose out of a very long-running, deep-seated, and institutionally embedded force from our past, that's always militated against a truly multiracial democracy. To make sense of January 6th and its aftermath, we need to look both clearly ahead and back and take full and honest measure of the hardline limits to democracy that the American system instituted at the very beginning, from the preservation of chattel slavery to the anti-democratic structure of the Electoral College, to the expressly racist legacies of the Supreme Court. To
2: protect the Constitution of the United States against enemies
0: foreign
3: and domestic!
0: At the heart of today's right-wing redemption movement lives the idea of a real America. It's an idea steeped in a vision of a social order under siege from hostile blocks of agitators, the non-white, the non-rich, the non-male. Among other things... January 6th was an abject lesson in the terrifying, visceral appeal of this social myth on the right. And one year out, we're seeing just how potent the allure of this deadly social myth is. In a recent Washington Post poll, one out of three respondents replied that violence against the government is sometimes justified. Now, that's more than twice the amount reported in similar polls from 2010, Not surprisingly, right-leaning Americans approved this stance at a far greater rate and white Americans endorsed it at more than double the rate of black Americans, 40% to 18. Such numbers bear shocking testimony to how rapidly the legacy of January 6th has been normalized within our political system. But these numbers, in another sense, are nothing all that new. The threat and ready deployment of racialized terror has always been a central driving force in our politics. That's why January 6 has this Janus-faced legacy. It looks back to an imagined America of white innocence and white dominion while pivoting forward to a future of post-democratic social enclosure. As Barton Gelman laid out in his article in The Atlantic titled, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun, The January 6th insurrection is very much an ongoing event. Indeed, it is the single most critical ongoing event in our public life today. What started as a presidentially sanctioned spasm over groundless 2020 election results turned into a frontal assault on democratic processes that has now fanned out to state legislatures. They've enacted a historic wave of crackdowns on ballot access and moved swiftly to gerrymander formerly competitive Democratic congressional districts completely out of existence. Meanwhile, the Kindred Culture War assault on critical race theory, which played a consequential role in the GOP's recapture of the governorship in Virginia, has kept the white nationalist base of the GOP eagerly mobilized. This coordinated racial backlash has merged with the mounting anti-vax appeals on the right to create an all-purpose and across-the-board repudiation of the legitimate exercise of power to protect our bodies and to protect our body politic. Threats to assassinate Dr. Anthony Fauci, calls to level the public school system and banish basic instruction about our country's racial past. Efforts to stonewall Congress and the courts These dynamics present an indistinguishable and toxic mood of violent secession, steeped in the bitter and all-too-familiar organizing trope, white racial reaction. In this episode of Intersectionality Matters, we're going to share with you a special roundtable conversation, which was aired as an Under the Black Light episode during last week's anniversary. It's moderated by Chris Lehman editor-in-chief of AAPF's new publication, The Forum. Joining me as speakers on the panel are Maximilian Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of Working People, a podcast by, for, and about the working class today. Osita Inwanevu, a contributing editor at The New Republic, whose work covers politics and policy in the United States. Jared Holt, a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, whose work covers right-wing extremist movements in the United States. Gene Guerrero, a columnist at the Los Angeles Times and the author of Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. I hope you all are inspired by today's episode and heed our call. If we are ever to make sense of January 6th, We urgently need to disrupt this drift into complacent normalization. The stakes could not be higher, nor the need for true social democratic redirection of our politics any greater.
2: So I want to start with you, Jared. Uh, You, under the aegis of the Atlantic Council, just released a new report on the state of right-wing extremism in the country. And so I thought you could kick us off by discussing what's different and what has remained the same about this threat in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. So
1: as somebody who's been in conversation with the committee throughout the last few months, I am confident of the scope of their research. They are utilizing all the resources. The question that I have is whether they're gonna be able to get this done quick enough. I fully believe the intention is there, but with midterms coming up, if there is a shift of power and Republicans gain the house, I can very much see this committee getting flushed down the drain and it would feel like it was all for naught. I mean, I I don't think you can understate the impediment that a completely unaccountable GOP has in this whole process. Um, With the exception of one or two lawmakers, the committee to investigate January 6th has not been a bipartisan endeavor, and uh, House leadership on the GOP has not sought to take any sort of real, tangible, legitimate action against the members of their own caucus who played these fundamental roles in agitating and promoting the type of lies, conspiracy theories, and misinformation that installed passions in people that drove them through the doors and windows of the Capitol on January 6th.
2: Right. So shouldn't, by this point, Democrats in Congress take that as kind of red and that- uh... You know, Republican members on the committee aren't going to be cooperative and you do just sort of have to make consequences that much harsher, right? Instead of having this game of footsie with Mark Meadows and finally, I guess, instituting an, an indictment for Steve Bannon for not honoring his subpoena, it feels like Democrats are a little too comfortable with the stonewalling that's happening on the right.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if it's comfort or if it is this kind of obsession to clinging to the procedural nature, because the strategy on the right uh, that we've seen play out through individuals like Steve Bannon has been to refuse subpoenas and to not comply with this process in hopes that they can kind of time out the clock, you know, see a shift in power in the House to where this subpoena becomes irrelevant at the end of this year.
2: And also, you know, the fact that the right has long ago given up on traditional conduits of information and investigation, such as Congress, and are using their own networks, this is something the Democrats can't sit back and watch unfold.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of lip service on the Hill these days about democracy being in peril and whatnot. Um, And if they really believe that, they should act like it, for sure.
2: Right. So uh, this is a good moment to sort of pivot to your new report. What have you found about how the extremist threat in the right has changed over the past year and over the weird, so we've been living through where we're waiting for a shoe to drop on the aftermath of of January 6th?
1: Yeah. So the report that came out this week kind of details two dynamics that, you know, fundamentally are in play here. One is that the narratives, uh, many of them sourced in you know what we have thought of for many decades as extremist movements, you know white replacement conspiracy theories, anti-Semitism, like the same kind of narratives and talking points are being lifted nearly verbatim out of these you know sort of old crypts of extremism and being channeled into uh, more mainstream conservative spaces. And all the while that that's happening, the actual kind of meat and potatoes organizing of extremist movements has, you know, largely kind of decentralized and fanned out into smaller venues. They're targeting these local governing bodies, whether it's health boards, school boards, you know, state officials or state houses, the leadership of these movements are trying to cultivate essentially death to multiracial democracy by a million cuts.
2: Right. And and that is also distressing in the sense that... um... There's a merger between, you know, what was formerly kind of the legitimate and at least the media treated as the grown up adults in the room wing of the Republican Party and this much more hardcore, much more militantly racist and confrontational wing of the party so that it's, you know, becoming increasingly pointless, I think, to draw a distinction there. And that's what jumped out at me about that Washington Post poll showing that, you know, almost 40% of Republicans now routinely say that it's justified to take up arms against the government.
1: Yeah. It, and I do want to say there's a historical precedent. Like This didn't start with January 6th. Right. It didn't end with January 6th. This has been an ongoing project spanning back decades and decades. Um, January 6th was a particularly violent symptom of it, but you know the threat in no way has succeeded.
2: Right and and you I'm sure remember back in 2010 the Obama Department of Homeland Security issued a report saying that white nationalism was the greatest terrorist threat facing America and we saw the the right just create such a media convulsion around that that they disappeared the report they disavowed its its consequences and that to me is like in miniature what we're living through now the white american nationalist wing just can claim this uncontested center ground in political debate.
1: Yeah, and they have a whole political system at their disposal that, you know, is willing to cede them that ground too, and that can't be understated.
2: Right, and a a media complex as well. Um, And that's actually a really good moment to pivot to Osita, who also actually has just published a piece in the New York Times on the anniversary of the attack, and that um, piece also has a depressing headline (laughs) that uh, the January 6th attack was inevitable. And you go on to say, you know, while this was a physical attack on Congress, it was also an attack on our institutions and grew out of our institutions. Can you explain that argument a little more? Sure. So as many people have
3: said over the last year, it's true in some senses that the January 6th attack was an attack on our institutions. But what my article is really about is the sense in which we can see January 6th as the product of institutions. We now have a conservative minority that we saw manifested in the ugliest possible way on January 6th that's come to view itself as the legitimate American majority for certain reasons. I think part of the reason is that we have a political system where if, if you really didn't know anything, if you weren't paying attention, you didn't know anything about the biases, but you just sort of observed political outcomes over the last 20 years, Republicans having so much power in the Senate. Republicans having a presidency for as long as they've had Democrats struggling, even when they have control of government to actually pass anything, you might look at that and say, well, this must be because the great majority of the American electorate is kind of conservative. This is a conservative country, and we have outcomes that reflect that. But that's not actually true. Twice this century, we've had Republicans come to the presidency despite losing the popular vote. Republicans have controlled the Senate for about half the last 20 years, even though they have represented a majority of the American electorate since the 1990s. In 2012, they uh, kept control of the House, even though they lost the popular vote. The outcomes we actually experience in American politics aren't because American electorate, majority of it, the bulk of it, is conservative, but because we have a system that's designed to advantage the constituencies that have really caught into conservative ideology in the Republican Party. But I think we have a conservative minority that sees those outcomes and says to themselves, well, these things are happening because we are the rightful American majority. And when things happen that we don't expect, that contradict our own political preferences, something underhanded must have happened. There must be some kind of aberration that somebody's created in order to deprive us of our rightful place in power. And I think that's how people interpreted the 2020 election. You had all of these claims being made about voter fraud. There's no way Biden got this many votes. I think that's reflected the sense amongst conservatives in this country that they are really the bulk of America. And when things happen that aren't what they want, then, then something untoward is, is taking place. Um, and our institutions reinforce that sense right? by giving Republicans so much power, despite the fact that they don't really have the burden of winning over uh, the bulk of the electorate like the Democratic Party has.
2: Yeah, and as you've been talking, you know, it occurs to me that this is replacement theory <laughs> and in spite of you know, having a deadlock on the Supreme Court for generation now, um, and having a Senate in which 30% of the country commands 80% of the representation, Republicans still need to feel like they're besieged, you know, and I think, you know, here in Washington, where I am, there's a, a kind of facile cynicism where people say, well, you know, the right has taken up this CRT moral panic to stoke up the base for the 2022 midterms. I mean, yes, operationally that's true, but the deeper narrative goes back to the revolt against affirmative action. It goes back to Reagan's attack on welfare queens. This is a very legible thread throughout the history of modern conservatism that never gets picked up in a coherent narrative fashion, either by the opposition party, alas, or by our media. And I think the way you framed it, you know, that we have. And institutional investment in this permanently aggrieved minority holding power, there's this feedback loop. And I think, you know, my concern is by not stanching the legacies of January 6th right away, we continue to furnish material for the feedback loop.
3: I think that's right. You know, honestly, when people talk about precursors to January 6th, the event that I I think about the most is the Pittsburgh shooting. It was a very different kind of event. But for me, it was an event that was caused basically by the same reasons. You had somebody go in and launch a a violent attack based on the sense that somebody is doing some work here to import a new kind of America. Somebody's trying to build a a new American majority that's going to overtake, replace the rightful American majority here through underhanded means. That is, I think, the central animating idea behind both the Pittsburgh attack and and January sixth. It's, it's, like you said, this, this sense of, there is a replacement happening and they can only win by replacement. And the other thing too is that if Republicans have an easier time winning elections, that means that somebody like a Donald Trump or or one of his functionaries in the Senate and the House has an easier time staying in office even if they say crazy things, right? Even if they spread conspiracy theories and extremist rhetoric, if there's a layer of insulation between public opinion and conservative power, that's something that only allows extremism to kind of fester and grow within these institutions that are then you know spreading information out to the public that's another sense in which the institutional arrangements can can deepen can fix extreme ideology you know this idea that there are fewer consequences if you're on the right
2: what were formerly you know sort of baleful consequences for bad behavior are now fundraising opportunities i mean (laughs) marjorie taylor green was kicked off twitter for spouting anti-vax propaganda and You know, she's out there raising money off of that. I go back to uh, the South Carolina representative who got up and yelled, you lie, Obama's State of the Union, when he was talking about immigrants not coming in under certain provisions of the ACA. Obama was not lying, but Joe Wilson, you know, is able literally off that viral moment to go in and raise millions of dollars. And that creates the model by which you get more and more Marjorie Taylor Greene's, Joe Wilson's. There are no disincentives and there are all kinds of positive incentives here. Um, I think that is also a good pivot opportunity to, to go over to you, Max. You have a unique experience on our paddle in that you sort of came of political age on the right yourself back in the day. So I, I'm wondering if you can sort of draw on your own experience there and give us a sense of how you see the rioters of January 6th fitting into today's right-wing coalition.
4: Absolutely. And uh, can I just say it's an honor to be on this panel with y'all, and really appreciate everyone's contributions. So my parents were very much of the Reagan generation, right? After becoming a U.S. citizen, Reagan was the first president that my dad uh, ever voted for, and my mom often described herself as a Reagan Democrat. Uh, They're more independents now, but for most of my life, especially before the Great Recession, uh, Reaganite conservatism had an outsized influence on my worldview and my politics. Uh, In the 90s and early 2000s, before the days of YouTube, much of our conservatism was absorbed and reinforced by this constant ideological air conditioning that came from Fox News and right-wing talk radio. It was through the car speakers or TV screens at home that I would often be reminded of Reagan's pithy common sense eloquence. I only really actually knew Reagan from quotes. He was, I think, less of a politician to us and more of a moral articulator of what we should believe, kind of like the lodestar of the conservative universe. And I mean, people loved quoting him, but there was one quote they loved above all others. In this present crisis, Reagan famously declared in his 1981 inaugural address, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. I remember hearing that quote or paraphrased versions of it so many times that it had become the first of all those catchy and often recited presidential quotes that actually penetrated my brain and shaped how I understood the world. I'd be lying if I said Reagan's words, repeated through the mouths of so many acolytes, weren't ringing in my head as I rewatched hours of video from the January 6th Capitol rioters. As much as I want to feel like I was watching a horrifying, unrecognizable political species, I knew that I wasn't. And the reasons why started to emerge when I went back and reread Reagan's full inaugural address. Quote, From time to time, we've been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule, that government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on Earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price." So to be clear, I'm not saying that there is a direct and linear line from Reagan to January 6, but there is a frenetic flow that you can trace from the latter to the former. In the same way that I could not look at January 6 and honestly say that there's no way I could imagine another version of myself marching with that frothing mob, I think we need to be honest about how the extreme violent edge of conservatism come Trumpism has manifested a deeply dug, widely spread, and well-irrigated ethos of right-wing anti-governmentality. We want to view the J6 writers as a terrifying but ultimately small, incoherent mix of extremists, And There's an equally comforting meta-narrative that follows. The argument, if I can paraphrase, goes like this. If Trump had fascist designs and J6 represented the physical grassroots manifestation of a Trump-led fascist movement, then J6 also definitively showed how weak and incoherent that movement was. They didn't take over the government. They didn't really have a governmental philosophy to install if they did. I think this argument puts the finger on something really important, but it draws the wrong conclusion. As I see it, the political incoherence of J6 is not the result of a nascent movement still unsure of what it wants to be. Rather, like the bubbling edge of a creeping tide, it is the result of decades of built-up resentments and ideological conditioning taken to their extreme conclusion.
2: Yeah, and as you were talking, I was reminded, of course, Make America Great Again was originally a Ronald Reagan campaign slope. So yeah, these continuities run very deeply, and are because we have an attention span challenge culture and media, we chop them up. We we don't connect all these threads and we don't see the ways in which to declare that government is not the solution, but the problem leaves ample room. Um, You're right. It's not a, a direct through line, but you can say at a very basic level, the rioters on January 6th, damn sure thought government was a problem, at least in the sense that their vision of a white majority-averse republic was not triumphing in the election and therefore it had to be smashed. And it's also important, I think, to remember, this is the most heavily armed wing of American politics. So I don't think fascist, um, you know, I'm a historian, I'm cherry about throwing terms around lightly, but I think if you look at Mussolini's black shirts and um, the the J6 and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, there's not a lot of daylight there. So just to wrap up your segment, would you say that this was a sort of coming out moment for the vigilante insurrectionist, right, Max?
4: Yes and no, right? So like to kind of pick up on, on your point about Republicans, um, you know, I think as much as they want to, at least in public, the Republican right cannot wash its hands of this. You know for years the right has explicitly not been focused on building a sustainable governing coalition but has instead focused on trying to unleash and control a perennial anti-government mob this i think has been the case at least since george w bush left office but as i've tried to at least hint at here and others are saying for decades media makers and politicians on the right have been sowing doubt and fear and mistrust eroding like acid any lingering faith people had in the government to make their lives uh, or better or even in their neighbors who are often painted as representatives of this like alien culture imposing itself on the real America and restricting the liberty of the individual. So I think the coherence is, is in the opposition. You don't have to have a shared sense of what the real America is to feel that it is under attack just like you don't have to have a consistent governing philosophy to see, in Reagan's terms, that "quote government is the problem." Um, so, I, I again, I suppose my argument is that what we are seeing now is the manifestation of latent, long-standing principles taken to their extreme conclusion, which is why I think January six appears a lot less like an outlier. If you plot January 6th in the larger right wing war position that's been taking place across the country, you start to see how, in fact, they are part of this same, you know, ideological blob where you have things like the Texas abortion bill that deputizes citizens to be the enforcers of law. Lawmakers are making it legal to hit people with their cars like this is the culmination, I think, of that individualism and and anti-democrat, anti-governmentalism.
2: Okay, and on that note, I'm, I'm going to pivot to Gene. You know firsthand from being in California how this kind of nativist brand of white nationalist politics plays out. You were there in the 90s when Pete Wilson ran on the demagogic Prop 186 campaign to essentially other all undocumented immigrants and deny them social services. And initially, it was a horrifying moment, but California rallied in many ways to understand that, you know, this was a regressive posture and hurting itself economically. So I I wanted to ask you, based on the experience of Prop 187 and its aftermath in California, what elements of that experience uh, might apply to the national nativist rights experience we're now living through and, and what elements might not apply?
5: Well, so it's it's as we've been talking, it's just so clear how important it is to look to the past for insights about what we're experiencing today. And in the in the 90s, California experienced rapid demographic change like what the nation is experiencing today. The state's white residents became a minority, a demographic minority for the first time that decade. And there was a nativist insurgency and a white backlash that took Many forms, none of which were as violent as what we saw on January 6th, but there were some noteworthy parallels and precedents. Um, There was a rise in vigilantism, people heading to the border with weapons to try to stop the Mexicans from coming across, vigilantes going to harass Latinos at work. There was a rise in voter fraud conspiracy theories, um, rooted very much in the idea that undocumented people were voting conspiracy theories about vans with Mexican people across the border to vote. Um, There were uniformed guards heading to the polling stations in Latino neighborhoods, some of them stationed by leading Republicans in the state. And then there was also propositions that were passed um, with bipartisan support that attacked um, social services for the undocumented, attacks on affirmative action, attacks on bilingual education, But this nativist insurgency was met in California with a much stronger political mobilization by Latinos who realized that they had to defend themselves and their communities, and they united with Black communities, with other progressive Californians to help turn the state the deep blue that it is today. Part of what made that mobilization possible was the 1986 Reagan immigration reform that allowed about a million Latinos in California to naturalize by the 1990s. So they were able to use their voices and have their human rights recognized by state politicians in a way that millions, uh, 11 million cannot nationally today because they are part of this subjugated class whose rights have been systematically denied and who are kept in a state of perpetual exploitation by Washington. So it's unclear whether we're going to be able to see the same Latino political mobilization nationally to help counter this never-ending insurrection. The biggest factor in whether someone participated in the insurrection was whether they came from a county with rapid demographic change. The University of Chicago put out a very interesting report about how the counties with those biggest declines in the the non-Hispanic white population were the most likely to send insurrectionists who were arrested in the storming of the Capitol. There was heavy involvement of the Oath Keepers who were involved in border paramilitary activities. You had Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist from San Diego who was killed, who was obsessed with immigration, posted many video rants about the quote unquote invasion. So a lot of this right wing political extremism that we're that we're seeing and and which we saw particularly on January 6th is motivated by fears about immigration, and particularly the quote-unquote Californication of the United States, which is another way of saying, you know, the racial diversification or the embrace of multiracial democracy, which is painted again and again in apocalyptic terms by conservatives.
2: Right, and, um, you know, this idea of the feedback loop, right? When you said that the 1986 immigration reform was sort of the necessary condition for political organization in the Latino communities in California, you know, we have a very sort of piecemeal and regressive model, even on the democratic side of immigration reform, where we basically have a model of deserving, you know, second generation dreamers and not this kind of straightforward, you know, you're here a certain amount of time, if you haven't committed a crime, you can be an American citizen. And, it feels like the failure to articulate that vision of, you know, we are a nation of immigrants, we welcome people, which is something actually Reagan himself endorsed. <laughs> and that's a bright line, I think, between that GOP and the one we're, we're seeing today. But uh, we wind up sort of fighting around the margins of these proposed reforms. And in the meantime, this right-wing xenophobic machine just keeps feeding off of that and because we aren't just flatly saying you're here and we welcome you they're able to keep stoking you know so that yeah people like Ashley Babbitt become martyrs to a nativist movement.
5: Yeah, I mean, immigration has become conceptually conflated with criminality in the national imagination, and that is leading to violent white fantasies. When you believe that the country is under mortal threat, that we are being invaded, that we are being besieged, anything is justified, You know, including systemic violence and, and cruelty, the separation of migrant children from their parents. And this is why you saw Stephen Miller, Trump's senior advisor and speechwriter, who I wrote my book about, who came of age in Southern California during this time of anti-immigrant hysteria. He came to believe, like many insurrectionists, that the country was in danger because of demographic change, and and he bought into that white supremacist hysteria and conspiracy theories and propaganda, and and it's why he devoted his energy to dismantling the asylum system, getting refugee admissions, strangling green card access, but also just systematically demonizing Black and brown communities across the United States.
2: Right, and mobilizing the state in that cause. Um, Thank you. I, I want to now turn to our own Kim Crenshaw, and uh, thank you for joining us. It's
0: like it's like riding in the back seat of a car um, that you usually drive, and and being comfortable. we right. really kind of nice back here. I, I like <laughs> this.
2: All right. All right. So, so long as you aren't telling me I missed the exit or, or something. <laughs> no <laughs> um,
0: no backseat driving.
2: <laughs> all right. Um, so I wanted to ask you—you know—a near instantaneous refrain we heard it in the immediate aftermath of J six, especially I think on the liberal side, is uh, this is not who we are. Uh, this can't be happening in our America. This is an aberration, an outlier. How, given the events of the year since, is that illusion sustainable? Or, you know, <laughs> as I'm strongly suggesting, maybe it's not. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, I use a, a metaphor sometimes about, um, likening this to the multiple episodes of Friday the 13th or Halloween. You know, you get to the end of the story and you think, well, now they know that Michael Myers is a problem. And then yeah. you get back to the very next episode. It's like, oh, I guess they didn't learn that. Right. And, and, you know, there was very much that sense after January 6th, because for those of us who are students of history, those of us who know that the this is who we this is not who we are is just a reflection of ignorance about the fact that this is exactly who we are. Those of us who have studied the coups that are in fact what redeemerism is, those who know about the bloody takeover of democratically elected governments in Wilmington and the Colfax massacre in that period of time that Reconstruction was overthrown know full well that this is not only who we are, but the denial about that is also who we are. Always hope that this moment is the moment that we're gonna wake up. This moment is the moment that's going to spur the desire to go back and open those history books, go back and understand that in America, tyranny, neo-fascism will come packaged as white entitlement. Those of us who are hopeful that there's going to be a moment of reckoning, of waking up to that fact, sat through last year with the uh, okay now folks you see that this politics of mobilizing anger over diminished overrepresentation of whiteness. That's what my colleague Luke Harris calls it. will finally saying now's the time. So we spend the first couple months like anxiously waiting for the media to actually pick up, as you all talked about earlier, um, the reports that came from the Department of Homeland Security suggesting that white supremacy was the greatest threat to security. We, we were looking for those who were willing to say, you know, we had other presidents who whitewashed what uh, redemption was about. One was called Woodrow Wilson, and he basically said <laughs> you know, not only is the story of white redemption a story of good government, but all of that old stuff is a a quarrel forgotten. We were looking for people to go back and unearth that stuff and say there is a line between the coups of the past and the rationalization of those in telling a distorted story of America. And what we got, was the opposite. (laughs) We basically got legislatures across the country taking up the question of the story of us but distorting that story and making it illegal to actually interrogate precisely these dynamics that tell us this is who we are. And so now it's like, why are we shocked that Michael Myers is walking again? We did not figure out how to put him down uh, permanently, and we still don't see the need to do so.
2: No, that is absolutely true. And you know, not only is Michael Myers out there, he's procreating. And that actually sort of leads into my next question. You sort of alluded to this in the experience of reconstruction and redemption, but talk a little more about the ways in which January 6th has always been a feature of our political order.
0: Yes, absolutely, and and to retell American history. I mean, I think so much of what we've been talking about so far is line and verse of it. When we talk about this is not an attack on the institutions, as as Asita was saying, but it is a product of the institutions. And part of that institution is the stories that we permit and tell, the histories that we acknowledge and those that we disavow, and the use of power in order to advance some of those histories, and I would say fantasies, uh, mythologies, about who we become, and uh, discipline, criminalize, and you know, we have to be honest, you're much more likely to get killed in this country for accurately telling its true history and accurately calling out the crises than you are for creating those crises. Let's never forget that, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, all all the people who were actually trying to call out the history that we now want to suppress were viewed as threats to the American order. That was not hyperbole. If you define the American order in the way that it was traditionally defined, which is this is a white country. And defining it that way and grounding the Constitution in that whiteness and laws in that whiteness means that the baseline that everybody rightly points out, the baseline expectations, the heritage that these people think they're fighting about was once an explicit part of the American order. So. The multiracial democracy that we are trying to fight to sustain is the reform. It is the thing that was promised after the 13th and the 14th Amendment, but it's always the one that is almost the first to go. Uh, When Wilson says all that old stuff, we've forgotten about it, those blue and gray reunions, the let's not teach our kids about the history because that is divisive. That's all one line that basically says the reformist dimension, the the piece that leads to multiracial democracy, that's the part that is most suspect. That's what causes the division. That's what we have to, to do away with. And until our center, until liberals, until the media are able to actually look at this competing narrative with a straight face and not try to distance themselves from critical race theory, from structural racism, from acknowledging the tyranny of white supremacy, until they do that, then this line, this hope, is never going to be as strong as the impulses and the instincts that everybody has been talking about in this wonderful conversation so far.
2: Now, that's um, a very powerful and sobering note. Um, I want to pick up the second half of our conversation with the points uh, that Kim just raised to close this out in the first half, we are at this critical inflection point in the history of our multiracial democracy, where we do have to you know, really take full measure of the nature of the threat before us and uh, confront the real nature of, of our country's history in this regard. In point of fact, racial terror, as again, Kim was noting, has been the principal bulwark against the fight against social democratic expansion in, in America. And that goes back, to the first slave rebellions and reconstruction, as we've been discussing, the rise of the Klan and, of course, the apartheid system of Jim Crow. So it's crucial, I think, to understand January 6th very explicitly in this context. It's not just focusing on reversing the results of a single election, but on ensuring that elections going forward will serve the agenda of this white grievance politics into perpetuity, or else, you know, we may not have elections going forward. I know that sounds, again, alarmist, but I think that is actually the moment we're in. And I think, as we often say at AAPF, you can't fix a problem without naming it. And apropos of that, I want to go back to you, Kim. As I was saying, you know, we have not even now achieved full consensus on what to call January 6th. Was it a coup attempt? Was it an insurrection? Was it a putsch? And what does that failure say about where we are in this project of trying to reclaim our multiracial democracy?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think that the most frightening thing to me is the fact that the folks that we rely on to defend democracy, to tell the truth about what's happening, are um, asleep at the wheel is, I think, a a probably overly optimistic view of it. I, I would say it's far more, you know, denial. And it's a denial that in part is bred in ignorance about who we are and part bred in a desire, a widespread desire for discourses of innocence, right? It can't be that bad or it can't be what it looks like. Everything that's happening now is a rehearsal of redemption from false claims to push entire communities outside of the ability to participate in the democratic process, uh, the use of violence to shore that up and the telling of a different narrative, one that focuses on the humiliation of white people as opposed to focusing on the realization of what true multiracial democracy looks like. So if you're not able to look at this moment and see this unfolding again then you're gonna have a hard time figuring out what was that thing that happened? And, you know, we don't even wanna talk about what that thing uh, that happened was because the good news is that it wasn't successful. And so we don't have to overly um, invest in trying to unpack it because we've gotten away from it. Well, that is the problem throughout our history. We don't wanna unpack what it means to be a country that once explicitly said it was a white country. We don't wanna deal with the fact that we have a consistent faction in this country that when confronted with the reality that they are not a winning faction, will be willing to change the rules. And that includes not just the rules of competition, it's not just the rules of democracy, who can vote. It's the rules of what's a crime. It's the rules of who should be punished. And that seems to me what we are challenged with right now. When the faction that wants to, to rule doesn't get their way, are we willing to call out the destruction that they're willing to pursue in order to once again gain dominance? I frankly don't see it nearly as much as I think the situation warrants. Now, and again, this is why I think it's no
2: coincidence that we've seen this pivot on the right to education, right? <laughs> to. Um, as you're saying, literally make illegal, and there are draconian new laws in New Hampshire and Dakota to this effect. Um, You can actually be the subject of
0: legal action if you are teaching the truth about our racial history. Well, and just to give people a sense of it, because I think these are the dots that are difficult for people to connect. Some people see vote suppression, some people see protest suppression, but they don't see the role of the inability to tell the truth as part of this repression. So North Dakota makes it clear. They have a law now that says it is a crime to teach that racism is anything other than individual level prejudice. It is a crime to to teach this. And, And, you know, we could go through the rest of New Hampshire says that it is Um, illegal to frame uh, the founding of the country as racist. I mean, they are going for broke. They're telling us exactly the narratives that are no longer accessible, partly because they tell us the truth about what's happening. If our side that is now much more concerned about cancel culture doesn't recognize this cancellation, which has the state behind it, is the one that will cancel democracy, we're back to Halloween 15.
2: Maximilian, I wanted to go to you next. You mentioned earlier these kindred attacks on, you know, making it legal to run your car into a crowd of protesters and to uh, sort of enact bounties on people getting abortions. Can you say a little more about the longer sweep of how that has come to pass and how we've gotten to this point where, you know, on the one hand, as Kim was saying, we have laws forbidding the teaching of, of real history, and now we have laws empowering vigilantism on the right.
4: Yeah, and I think um, just to piggyback on what Kim just said, and something that I think many in the mainstream media, especially in the kind of liberal center, it's a lesson that they have never really taken to heart. But one of the things that the right constantly gets correct, right, is that the right addresses regular people as the protagonists in the struggle for democracy, however selectively defined, that has been lost or is actively being stolen from them. Whereas Democrat, the Democratic left addresses regular people as the beneficiaries of a democracy already achieved. And I think that that plays into the vigilantism, right? Because again, it's now what we're seeing is the sort of legalization, the institutionalization of that vigilante ethos that has been, I think, a very consistent feature, as we were saying before, of of a lot of kind of right-wing permutations throughout American history. This is why the Texas abortion bill in uh, its kind of enforcement as uh, something that deputizes private citizens to sue abortion providers or anyone who assists them. And the Supreme Court essentially like letting that stand. That is more or less opened the floodgates to a lot of these other areas. Government is being used to transmute that sort of enforcement role to private citizens. We mentioned Ron DeSantis and the Stop Woke Act which would give parents the power to sue local school districts that teach lessons rooted in critical race theory. We mentioned the different states that are making it legal for people to hit protesters with their car. And obviously the biggest kind of example of this, the most celebrated figure in this vein is Kyle Rittenhouse. It's not an accident that Rittenhouse has become, you know, this kind of venerated figure because he, I think, embodies the kind of defending an America that is under siege, being in fact the actual one to take matters into your own hands um the more that i that we go down this road the less comfortable i am calling it vigilantism because that implies again this sort of notion that the private citizen has to kind of follow their own moral code even if it goes against you know that of the government what i think is happening is that that you know moral code that the government is supposed to kind of have and enforce is more or less being dumped into private citizens and creating the sort of like Hobbesian hellscape of all against all, where everyone feels like they are kind of, as individuals, defending some lost sense of America from the barbarians at the gates. And what the right does very effectively is they provide a lot of different arenas for this to take place. It happens in school board meetings. It happens online. It happens at state houses. Again, when you feel like you are defending something that is being stolen, you go to the area and the, the focus on looting is, is also not an accident there, right? But you go to where, like Rittenhouse did, you go to where you think the thing is being stolen and we are seeing the kind of institutionalized permissiveness from the political right to give people like that ability to be the kind of enforcers.
2: Right. Now, and I think as much as it's a vigilanteism mindset, it's also an, an impunity mindset where there are no consequences. That's a key new element in this. And this is actually, again, a perfect segue to uh, go back to you, Jared, um, as the person patrolling the extreme and increasingly violent wing of the right-wing movement. Maximilian mentioned Kyle Wittenhouse as sort of the new poster boy of the American right. And uh, I'm just wondering, based on your own close tracking of these trends on the right, are we just going to see this sort of tsunami of impunity just continue to build? Are we going to see, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse in Congress?
1: I mean, there. I guess it wouldn't surprise me to see like Kyle Rittenhouse join on a congressional campaign or even run one on its own down the road. I think everybody knows it's going to probably appear at major conservative conferences, including the one uh, hosted by Turning Point USA that he already did appear at. When accountability and uh, shame is not enforced against these things, you get more of it. And if I can build on a point that Kim and Max uh, were making, you know, if you ask me what I do, I'll say that I attract domestic extremism. But for the sake of the way that we talk about it and talk about exactly what's going on, I think we need more specific terminology than that to specify exactly what we mean when we're talking about extremism, anti-Blackness, anti-LGBT, you know, white supremacist ideology, to get More specific on those terms, we can define it better. And then hopefully that drives conversation in a more productive direction because extremism on its own, you know, just as a definitional term, it just kind of means outside the realm of mainstream acceptability and historically abolitionism, you know, when that first popped up on the organizing scene, that would have been considered an extremist movement, but of course that wasn't a bad thing. It was a great, you know, so like considering that context and then also, you know, as these ideologies, as we've seen, especially in the last year, are clawing their way closer and closer into mainstream spotlights and, and discourse on the bright, I think more specific terminology is needed.
2: Yeah. So apropos of that, what is the terminology <laughs> that we should be using to describe this moment? We've discussed, you know, the use of fascism, which I think, to a lot of Americans feels European and old world over there. But at the same time, I also feel like we don't do enough to acknowledge the global nature of the spread of authoritarianism. You know, it's Bolsonaro, it's Orban, it's all these people that are actually being also turned into heroes on the American right
1: yeah I I think you know if you were gonna distill it down to one through line I think you know there's language that applies in every situation you know talking about neo-nazis is' a little different than talking about uh your run-of-the-mill anti-immigrant activist even though like yeah. that that line lasts, kind of i would up, argue like, a about, bit, yeah. But like running down the street with the swastika is like an, another ordeal entirely but I, I think kind of the through line here is a lot of This extremist ideology is motivated by, you know, a white, often evangelical Christian population who believes itself to be, you know, rightful controllers of the nation and see change that isn't empowering or opening opportunities to people that aren't them as a threat or that, you know, that kind of shift in society is negative, or, or like Osita said, the, the subject of some kind of boogeyman out there or, or nefarious force?
2: Well, this, again, uh, is a great segue to you, Gene. Since you had mentioned earlier the sort of most reliable predictor of someone taking part in uh, the insurrection was them coming from a county that was experiencing demographic decline in its white non-Hispanic population. Um, and as we are seeing what the riot is calling the Californification, of uh, the country, you know, what what do you see as the long-term demographic trend here and what, you know, if we start using some of the the terminology that Kim and Max and Jared have referenced, what might break the momentum of this xenophobic trend?
5: I mean, calling things by their right name is absolutely necessary. Um and and calling things out and which is just not happening at all on the level of the Republican party you have a party that is condoning and cultivating violence i mean even just the recent uh, paul gosar posting a video of himself murdering um alexandria ocasio-cortez and you know every republican de- defending it that just speaks to how normalized this violence has become and this constant conjuring of The threat of a brown or a black mob to deliberately incite the violence of the white mob, of the truly violent, historically violent, uh, historically destructive white mob. And and to me, it just reminds me of how disturbingly influential the book, uh, The Camp of the Saints has become in this entire narrative, this white supremacist novel that was translated to English um, in the United States in in the 80s or 90s. And which depicts the destruction of the white world by refugees who are described in animalistic terms as as monsters and as beasts and whose anti-racist defenders who are called agitators and anarchists help to destroy the white world. And this is all imagery and language that became normalized under the Trump presidency, I think deliberately by his speechwriter, Stephen Miller, who was influenced by this book by Steve Bannon, who peddled this book as well. And it's all just been building towards trying to incite this kind of violence. It reminded me when we saw the El Paso massacre, where 23 people were killed at a Walmart um, by someone who was trying to stop a quote unquote Hispanic invasion. That happened just a few days after Steve Bannon had organized a symposium right there, just outside of El Paso, calling on citizens to defend against the invasion. And I had the feeling when I was there reporting on that symposium that you know something terrible was, was going to happen from the hate mongering that they were live streaming to millions of people across the United States. To me, January 6th is just another manifestation of that normalization of hate mongering and inability or refusal to call it out as such by our mainstream media.
2: Osito, I will close the analytical part of our conversation with you. How do you account for the kind of zombie appeal of this fetishized vision of a frozen American republic on the part of our media interlocutors? How is it that it is so hard to move them off of the Constitution and make them pay attention to the camp of the saints? Uh,
3: I was thinking when this piece of mine wound up for the Times, that as much as I've criticized the press, it is true that right now we're at a moment where the editorial boards, people on TV are now talking about Republican ideology and Democratic values and the contradictions there. I think that's good. But I also think it's worth remembering that for like two years, a lot of that energy was being directed at Vladimir Putin. And I'm not gonna say that nothing happened there or that what happened there wasn't concerning, but it was insane to me over the course of that period that people thought that was the big story, that that was the extant threat to democratic values. And I think it came from what Kim has been talking about, this, this sense of denial, right? That this is not who we are, so we need to reach for some kind of external explanations. It's the same kind of reason why I've been hesitant to use the word fascism. I'm agnostic on that question, partially because I think that a lot of what we're experiencing now can be explained just in terms of conservative politics. If you read people like Russell Kirk, if you read William F. Buckley, if you go back and read Edmund Burke, right, what is conservatism about? Conservatism is the sense that societies have these natural stabilizing features that shouldn't be messed with. So if the wealthy are on top, that must be because, well, the wealthy are deserving and virtuous in certain ways, and that justifies their position. If men are on top, well, that's because men are naturally capable of doing certain things, and that justifies their position. If white people are on top, that's because white people are advanced in certain ways. They've done certain things to justify that position. That is what conservatism is, fundamentally. That is what it's always been about. So, you know, I I think that when people like me start talking about reforming our institutions, a lot of people hear that and say, well, this person wants to suppress conservatives. This is somebody who wants to deny conservatives political representation. And it genuinely, truly is not about that. I fundamentally believe no matter what everybody holds as their ideology, they're deserving intrinsically of political rights or representation. And I also believe that democratic concentration is the only thing that actually changes people's minds. When you have to argue with people, win over people to achieve power, that's something that forces you to acknowledge, to engage with other views. And if you don't have a truly democratic system, You let these ideologies kind of fester in these enclosed blocks, right? You don't have this interchange of of ideas. And and, and that's why I think thinking about institutions is is so important, because I think that for a lot of elites right now, I think there's going to be some kind of magic solution. It's going to be reasonable Republicans, or it's going to be regulating Facebook. That's the sort of thing on top of the underlying system that will solve the problem when really we're at a point where the institutions themselves are generative of the problems that we're experiencing. And that has to be directly addressed and confronted. And it's not going to be directly addressed and confronted if we keep valorizing, mythologizing the origins of the system and and why it is the way it is. One of the books I'd recommend to everybody who wants to know more about the Constitution is a book by Michael Klarman at Harvard called The Framers' Coup, where he points out that the Constitution itself was an anti-democratic response to people at the state government level after the revolution passing laws to empower, to help poor people, which the elites of the day saw as attacks on property. So they construct this sovereign federal government, they create the Senate, they create the judiciary. All of this was itself a kind of anti-democratic reactionary movement that we've now kind of valorized as democracy uh, when there's really no such thing. So, I, I think it's important for people to understand that history, to not be afraid to confront that history, and to understand, too, that we valorize these institutions because they provided material benefits to a certain segment of the American population. The sort of rural white population in this country has benefited a lot from the current design of the system. We should move to one in which they have political rights, but we have equality. Everybody counts the same, no matter where you happen to live. That's just not the case right now. And it's going to be a real devil of a time getting there.
2: So yeah, Osita, you you powerfully laid out the need to think about our institutions in a very fundamentally different way. And in that spirit, I want us all, so we don't end on a crushingly depressing note here to uh, bring us, as though we're having a potluck dinner, um, bring us one element of the American institutional system we're now in, we need to fundamentally rethink and redirect. I will, I guess, call on you, Kim, first.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes. And, and the whole potluck sort of way of of, of sublimating all, all of our um, anxieties into eating. Um, but my my dish that, that I, I would bring is the courts. I have been astonished about how little traction the potential takeover the courts has garnered um, in the conversation that we're having about the crises that we're currently facing and in the projections about what may happen if we have another uh, election and another moment like we had in 2020. Um, This also is a long-term strategy. The right wing has plotted, planned, and executed a takeover of the federal courts over the last four decades. And it has been tremendously dogged. They have stayed on message throughout the entire process. They have played by their own rules They basically were able to steal seats on the Supreme Court, and the outrage that should have greeted that has been relatively muted. If you ask uh, Republican voters in at least the 2016 presidential campaign how important the courts were, uh, the courts are up in the top three or four issues. You ask that of Democrats, they're like, "What, what courts? We cannot sustain a democracy in the face of the willingness of one major political party to rewrite the rules. And, and th- this is perhaps the one place where I would want to think seriously about whether the ultra nationalism that has eroded even their own commitments to law and order qualifies for this to be framed through the F word when we know that that is happening and we are not paying attention to the last ditch effort to bring some of that energy back and and paint within the lines, then we've pretty much written the tale of how deterioration will actually unfold. So I would say that it is really up to the center and the left to really reinvest in how we think about uh, the rulemakers of society, reinvest in a narrative that makes that make sense to people, that allows people to see what the consequences of rulemaking actually are. So if we look at how we got here, we got here through uh, Shelby that defeated the Voting Rights Act. We got here through defeats of campaign finance reform. We got here through defeats on any limitation, uh, reasonable limitation on Second Amendment rights. These rules actually narrate the current moment. And we need to be able to tell a story about that that appeals to and mobilizes the vast constituencies that are deeply troubled by the direction that our country is going in.
2: Yes, and I would add to that litany Bush v. Gore, um, which is perhaps the ultimate version of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, Um, but yes, I enthusiastically second everything you just said, and I wish to God there were a left-wing Federalist Society. Um, (laughs) So, um, Jared, over to you. You're Sort of dealing with the ugliest underbelly of this movement. So you must have a long list, but I'm going to ask you to confine yourself to one and keep it short.
1: Yeah. Uh, the one that I tend to point people towards is public engagement. Uh, something that I worry about a lot is that, you know, especially after four to five years of Trump era politics, that people in the U S are kind of experiencing like a bystander effect that we feel like there's nothing we can do about it. And that we just are sitting back and watching the train crash. Uh, But then I look at extremist groups popping up at these local government offices and stuff. And I'm just thinking, where is everybody else? Because like a majority of people don't think this way. So I think doing what we could do to revitalize the energy and excitement of getting involved publicly and like really actually protecting and charting like what we want going forward, I, th- I think is crucial because if you don't fight for this, this being multiracial democracy and fairness and inclusion, equity, et cetera, you lose it. Yeah,
2: and it's, it's not guaranteed to come back. Um, Jean, over to you. I think that's a perfect pivot point. What do you think is the sort of one principle reform we need to undertake?
5: Well, for me, it's the left needs to stop letting hate groups control the immigration debate, and that means the Democrats need to deliver on their promise of a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people who live in this country. The last opportunity that I see in the foreseeable future is through this reconciliation package, um, which is seeming less and less possible, but I just think For these people who've been living here for so many years, who have roots here, families, U.S. citizen children, jobs, they they need to be incorporated into our society. And so far, the Biden administration has mostly maintained Trump's most draconian immigration policies, the Remain in Mexico program, using Title 42 COVID as an excuse to turn away all asylum seekers. And they're trying to perform compassion for immigrant communities while at the same time catering to nativists, and it's not gonna work. Uh, You know, President Obama tried that and all it did was pave the path for Trumpism and the rise of nativism. Um, So we really need to radically reinvent the conversation around immigration. Um, You know, make this idea of the United States as a nation of immigrants a reality and and recognize that immigrant communities have been essential for getting us through this pandemic in so many ways.
2: Yes, hallelujah. Maximilian, you um, host the Working People podcast and are sort of on the ground looking at democratic self-organization as it happens in the workplace.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, what I see when I talk to workers around the country really kind of is another side to what Osita described, right, about how the very institutions that we're saying are under attack are kind of the things that generate the sort of lack of faith in the institutions right that that drive the sort of malaise we're seeing that right now we can see the sort of evolution in our cultural landscape and how that impacts the minds and livelihoods of everyday working people in response to Trump the countervailing narrative of the election of Joe Biden was that government could work you know as that narrative has broken down and we've reached a new level of that breaking with the current explosion of COVID cases in the country, the push in the opposite direction has been massive. The notion that a collective solution to ending the pandemic has been more or less abandoned. And the burden has once again, been placed entirely on individuals. At the same time, I don't think it's a coincidence that the current dominant pop culture counter narrative to that sort of collectivism is focusing so much on like this muscular individualism. And even, quote unquote, bad boy entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and somehow even lamer Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, right? Um, Capitalists, as always, want to make themselves the heroes of the dystopian culture that they've created. The point that I'm getting to, though, and this is where things get dark, is that we know what we're in store for with the rest of the 20th century. You know, I think all of us somewhere deep inside of us know that Trump and the U.S.'s absolute failure to adequately respond to COVID-19 have both been previews of the kind of political of the kind of politics that will become increasingly attractive to more and more people as we continue barreling into the dystopian future of climate catastrophe the paradigm of gatedness of strengthening borders of shoring up and stocking up on all the resources we can get our hands on kicking people off the life raft that is going to be the impulse and when you have individuals kind of all fighting over each other to hoard you know rapid tests or whatever it is, right? You, you once again limit the possibility of collective solutions, which is why I always focus so much on workers in the labor movement because, as I've said before, by definition, electoral politics in this country, bifurcated in the two-party system, provides no pathways for working people to come to collective solutions to our problems. And I think everything that we've discussed here has shown that, in fact, that is kind of the point, right, is to is to make us lose our faith that such a solution could ever happen. But this is where I think there's a lot of instructive stuff and a lot of hopeful stuff happening in the labor movement, because this is one of the few, if only, realms of our lives, our social social lives, where we actually have to work with people with wildly different political views, people with different races, uh, genders and languages spoken on the shop floor. This is an arena where you have to actually overcome those differences, collectivize as workers and achieve common goals. We are not asked to do that, nor are we incentivized to do that in electoral politics. And we need to rebuild those muscles if we're going to have any sort of hope of finding a collective solution to the things that are rotting our society, let alone a belief that collective solutions can even work.
2: Yes. And uh, while we're touting books, I will note Max's uh, Working People book is out in the spring on war books. Um, Osita, you started us down this institutional path. So I think it's only fitting that you wind us up here. <laughs> what do we have to do to save this mess?
3: Well, just to sort of piggyback on Max's whole spiel, we didn't get a a lot of time to talk about it today, but I do think that in a very broad sense, we're headed for transformational times. It's up to us whether they're fully transformationally bad, or whether there's going to be good transformation that comes out of it as well. But for better words, we're headed for times where basic systems, basic institutions are going to get disrupted. And it's just a matter of whether we actually, common people, working people, utilize the opportunity to reshape our institutions. One small place for us to start, very small, adding new states, starting I think probably with the District of Columbia. One of the under aspects of January 6th was that people who were fully enfranchised voters from across the country came to stage a riot over their supposedly suppressed political rights in a city of 700,000 people without a full vote in Congress. And the reason why they don't have a full vote in Congress is racism. Obviously, the founders created a federal district at the very beginning of this country, didn't have very many people in it. But as recently as the late 1970s, there was actually a bipartisan consensus that D.C. should be granted voting representation. The collapse of that consensus, I think, is pretty directly attributable to the reactionary turn on the right. D.C.'s demographic changes, in fact, became a largely African-American city. That, that is the reason why people have the anxieties that they have about it. And that's something that we're going to have to directly confront if we are actually going to grant those people the rights that they deserve. We we should talk about the territories as well, but the D.C. is a case where the will of the people who actually live in the city has been made crystal clear for decades and decades and decades. That is, I think, where any kind of big transformation has to start. Get engaged in that issue. I don't really have very much hope, frankly, that it's going to be resolved by by this Congress. But when the time comes when we're ready to have these conversations and start implementing big changes, I think that's the first step.
2: Yes, it is literally on the license plate down here. Um, No taxation without representation, which is how we live. Um, Well, thank you all so much for this incredible conversation and this searching exploration of the deep fissures in our racialized political order that were exposed and widened on January 6th. It's a great, obviously a great deal of work ahead to reclaim our country's multiracial democracy, but actually this breakdown of the conceptual and institutional failures and challenges makes it clear where that work has to happen, beginning with the defense of our core rights to ballot access, truthful education, and civic inclusion. I'd like to thank our panelists, Maximilian Alvarez, Kimberly Crenshaw, Jean Guerrero, Jared Holt, and Rosita Juan for joining us today. You're each a model of this sort of bold thinking and forthright engagement that we will all need a lot more of in the struggle to rescue our democracy.
0: Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was co-produced by Ashley Julian, with support provided by Destiny Spruill, Rebecca Sheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
3: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation.
4: I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the lawyer was my girlfriend. It was all I had.
3: What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away?
4: We
5: gotta attack Scarcella.
3: Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.